as sort of a prelude to the book of Acts, which is going to be our bread and butter for the year 2022. We're going to spend a few weeks talking about the, the heart and soul of our church. As we talk about the birth of the church in the book of Acts and the growth of the church, the explosive growth of the church, and the norm set for the church, it's, it's important for us, I think, to look back at why we're here and to consider what we're about, what we're doing, what God has called us to be. And our aim is this, and you've probably heard us say this in one form or another so many times, and you've seen it posted or you've seen it worn around the wrist of our members. Our aim is to be everyday missionaries. The belief is really pretty simple. According to the scriptures, we are God's ambassadors. God makes his appeal through us. That appeal is this, be reconciled to God. So wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you go to school, whoever your friends are, whatever your sphere of influence is, you, if you're a Christian, are a representative of God. You're an ambassador of the king. And as such, your role is to be his representative, to declare that message of reconciliation, be reconciled to God, because God is doing what he does, drawing people to himself, demonstrating his love towards them, changing their lives, securing for them eternity through the work of people like me and you, everyday missionaries. But we are not independent, solitary, everyday missionaries. We are a family of everyday missionaries whose aim is to make disciples. As a family, we know that what God has called us to be and do requires other people. It can't happen. It doesn't ever happen. It has not happened in Christian history that people can become the people that God designed them to be on their own, by themselves, without others, without the church. God does this together. And so as we think about this responsibility, this calling, this, this identity of being everyday missionaries, I want us to discover, to consider, to begin to practice five habits, five specific things that we can do, that, that we must do as fellow believers in order to become everyday missionaries, in order to continue to be everyday missionaries, in order to flourish as everyday missionaries. And the first habit I want to talk about today is the habit of gathering. You're here already, so you're off to a good start. So thank you for being here. Thank you for prioritizing Sunday morning. And, and I'll try not to go off script too much because I've got plenty of content on script. But I hope you will not ever minimize the importance of gathering with God's people. In your small group, your life group, if you're part of a D group, a few other believers that really get together and connect with one another on a personal level, a deep level where you know each other and you're praying for each other, encouraging one another, challenging each other sometimes, maybe correcting each other as, as need be, I hope you will not neglect the meeting together. And this gathering, God's people gather together for worship. God's people gather together for encouragement, for mutual edification. I hope that will be high, high on your list of values. There's a missional value that drives this call to gathering. Over these next several weeks, if you're in a small group, you're going to be talking about these missional values, these things that we care about the most, and the fruit or the effect those missional values produce. So if we have this value, this is something we really care about, then this is something we're really going to do. These are the actions that we're going to do, and those actions create habits. So values create actions, actions practice with regularity, consistency, create habits, and those habits produce gospel fruit. So that's our aim as we go through this series together. So our missional value on us considered today is community. What does it mean to be part of community? Now here's what I believe already, and I think if you don't believe it, 
already, I could probably persuade you pretty quickly, we all want some sense of community. I mean, really everybody does. You want some sense of connection with other people. You want some sense of belonging, um, some sense of people knowing you and, and you knowing other people, some sense of, of, of a place where you fit, a group that you connect with. You know, we're suckers for that sort of thing. I mean, if, if I go to a place to eat and they start to know me by name, I'll forget everything else. Every other place in the community, I'll keep eating there just because they know me. Even if it's not so great, I'll go there. Um, you know, we, I want to be known. I want to connect with people. I, I want to do business with the same people. I want to be around those people. I want to be known. We want that. And that's one of the reasons we gather like we do. Clubs, organizations, sports teams, you know, we want to have our sense of tribe, our, our sense of identity, uh, our sense of belonging. We, we love this. We were made for this. But the sort of community I'm talking about is not superficial. And it's not just based on things we have in common or things that we like together or enjoy doing together or things that we cheer for together. The sort of community I'm talking about is this, the commonality that we have in Jesus Christ. The sort of commonality that would bring people together who otherwise would never connect with one another. Because we aren't the same. Because we don't have the same background. Because we didn't come from the same places. Maybe we don't have the same opinions about everything. Maybe we don't have the, the same income levels. Maybe we're diverse racially or ethnically. But there's something that unites us that's bigger than all of those things that creates a commonality in us. And that's the bond we have in Christ. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that sort of gospel community. I was reading a book called The Compelling Community by Jamie Dunlop. In The Compelling Community, he describes the uniqueness of this, what I'm describing, and he calls it a gospel-revealing community. The sort of community that is not only formed by the gospel, brings people together because they've trusted in Christ together, but actually puts the gospel on display for people who are not Christians yet. Listen to what he said. He said, in gospel-revealing community, many relationships would never exist but for the truth and power of the gospel, either because of the depth of care for each other or because two people in relationship have little in common but Christ. While affinity-based relationships also thrive in our church, they're not the focus. Instead, church leaders focus on helping people out of their comfort zones to cultivate relationships that would not be possible apart from the supernatural. And so this community reveals the power of the gospel. You can't physically see the gospel. It's simply truth. But when we encourage community that's obviously supernatural, it makes the gospel visible. So we talk about this missional value of community. We're talking about what do we do that puts God on display for the sake of the nations? What do we do that creates a sense of compelling attraction that people can say, I wish I had that. I wish I had those sort of people in my life. I wish I had those sort of sustaining relationships. I wish I had that sort of support. I wish I had that sort of friendship. I wish I had that sort of family. That's gospel community. So how do we protect this? And how do we practice this? How do we make sure this is what we have? How do we make sure we're guarding this? How do we make sure we continue this? I want to leave you an open-ended answer to that question from a book that we just uh, finished studying, from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. With the confident assurance that Jesus is coming back and the end of our missional opportunities is on the horizon, 
One day we won't be able to do what we're doing. One day the opportunity of the church to be the church and make Christ known to the nations, that opportunity, that window will close because Christ will return. Knowing that day is coming, what sort of people should we be? Well, this passage tells us this. We should not neglect meeting together and we should be encouraging one another. Let us consider how. And I want you to do that. Over these next several weeks, I want you to consider how you're going to do that. Let's think this thing through. Let's consider this in practical ways. What can we do that practices and protects missional community? The relationships we have that are unique in Christ that make Christ known to the nations. With that in mind, I want you to pray with me this morning. Father God, we want to glorify you as your church. We want to be increasingly shaped into the type of church, the type of people that honor you, that are most effective in your hands, that build your kingdom, that bless the people that are part of us and and become a blessing to those all around us. Uh, Father, we want to be your ambassadors and we want to do it well. We want to be about what we're to be about. We want to fulfill the commission, the assignment, the directive that we've been given to make disciples. Father, we need this. We need this. We need this community. You created us for this need. We function best in this community, and the gospel is made known best through community. So, Father, teach us, show us, and, Father, move us today to action, not just to thinking, philosophizing, considering, discussing, but doing. May we be doers of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do to build this case for gathering is I want to do this quick flyover um, from the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, I know that sounds like a huge challenge, but we're going to hit this quick, so be ready to write. Get a couple extra pens in case one runs out of ink. Because we're going to do this fast. We're going to look at a church that was actually doing it well. Now, I know a lot of the churches we look at in the New Testament are examples of bad behavior, bad beliefs, bad practices, bad theology, etc. The church at Thessalonica was not that. This church was a thriving church. And it's amazing their story, how it grew up supernaturally. We'll see the story of the birth of this church as we get into the book of Acts later on. Acts chapter 17 describes how this church came about, but how it grew up supernaturally, how it flourished in the face of all sorts of opposition and persecution, and how it was very effective for the kingdom's sake. This is a healthy church. This was a good church. This was the sort of church that we all long to be a part of, this kind of church. With that in mind, we're going to look at some lessons here of 1 Thessalonians. Why do we gather? That's our question. We gather, first of all, for this reason. We gather because the church is a God-established supernatural community. That's what the church is. The church is a God-established supernatural community. Now, again, I'm going to try not to take too many tangents here. But it seems to be quite in vogue, and this is not a real modern phenomenon. This is sort of an old way of thinking that just continues to rear its head. But it seems to be in vogue again to disparage the church while simultaneously thinking we can elevate God. And, you know, in other words, you know, we can have this dim view, this negative view of the church and still think we can have this high view of God. You cannot. You cannot have a high view of God, the work of God in Christ, the gospel, and have a dim view of the church. The church is the means by which the gospel is made known to the nations. And God established the church, not people. Now, it's made up of people, so that's where the rub comes in because it includes people like me and you and all of our issues and flaws and hang-ups and those kind of things. But God establishes supernaturally. When you were reborn in Christ, when you were regenerated by his Holy Spirit, when you were afforded new life and justified and given salvation, part and parcel of that salvation is you were born into a family 
are reborn into a family, and that family is called the church. This is who we are. Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 for a moment. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's an awesome statement of the birth, the development, and the health of this church. And think of some lessons here for a moment. The supernatural community. A supernatural community whose bond and hope is Jesus together. How did these people from so many disparate walks of life. Because in the church at Thessalonica, you had Jewish converts. Predominantly, they were pagan converts. There were so many different idols and false temples in the city of Thessalonica or Thessaloniki in the modern Greek. There were so many of these at that time. This was a major thoroughfare on a Roman highway from east to west. The religions of the world were practiced there. And yet from all these disparate practices emerged a people of God. How does that happen? That's supernatural. What's the bond? Jesus. Wasn't their background? Wasn't their ethnicity? Wasn't their socioeconomic status? It was Christ and Christ alone. As a result, they lived as family together. They now are brothers. They treat each other as family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 4. This newly birthed church exhibits the Holy Spirit together. Again, it's a supernatural gathering. It's not people who said, hey, you and I have a lot in common. We should hang out. You and I should team up. We should get together. It was more than that. There's a bond that's unseen, but all-powerful in them is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work among them, binding them together. What do they do as a church family? They disciple one another. What did he say about discipleship? You received the word from us, and you received us. You heard what we were saying, you look at how we lived, and you followed. That's discipleship. It's someone teaching someone else the truth, simultaneously living a life that's worth imitating. That's why Paul told Timothy when he was instructing him, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Both of those. If you do this, if you do this, you're going you're gonna to succeed at the mission that God has given you. You're going to thrive at disciple making. They were discipling one another. As they were discipled together, they also endured together. Remember, persecution and affliction was commonplace for the early church, particularly in, particularly in cities like this, formerly pagan cities. They endured together. They proclaimed the gospel together. I mean, look at how he, he notes, the word of the Lord has sounded forth you throughout this region. And as this was a major shipping port, as this was a major military thoroughfare, when the gospel began to take root there, it naturally just went out. People were hearing it and taking it with them wherever they went. They were proclaiming the gospel together. And ultimately, what were they doing as a true church? 
They were awaiting his return together. Now, that doesn't mean that they were all holed up in a place, doing nothing, you know, hoping that Jesus is going to show up real soon. It meant they were living their lives with gospel intentionality. Because we know that Jesus is coming back, we're going to live with great intentionality. That chapter is a great overview of a healthy church by itself. This is what they did. They gathered together because this is a supernatural community that God put together. How can we not gather? How can we not be in community? This is what God has made. So when we think about gospel community, this is not something artificial that you and I are trying to stir up in this new year. This is not something that we're trying to create and then trying to keep together. This is something that we are trying to maintain because God has given it. This is God's intention for us, and the enemy is always warring against it. Why do you think there's so many passages in the New Testament that challenge the church to unity? Because the opposite is our norm. Conflict, division, discord, and the enemy always trying to disrupt, dismantle. Why? Because the church is the means of the mission of God. He affects his purposes in this world through his church. So they gather together, have supernatural community. Second reason we gather together. We gather together as God's people because God's word flourishes best in community. Now I want you to write this down and I want you to give really careful thought to what I'm about to say. It's great if you start the new year out with some books that you want to read by quality authors. Every year I think about this and I see people making their resolutions and things they're going to read and things they're going to do. And my advice to you is, is definitely read good things. Read good things. And I would challenge you, my personal persuasion is, read some things by some authors that are older than you are, that lived long before you. Read some classics. Read good things. Study good things. Start a Bible reading plan. Start today. Dig into a Bible reading plan. There's so many options. If you, if you aren't sure what some good options are, I don't mind if you email me, and I'll send you some. There are good apps to be had. There are good Bible reading plans to be had. I would discourage you personally from saying, I am going to start and read through the Bible this year, and I'm going to read it from cover to cover, beginning in Genesis, because you're going to enjoy that for the first month or so. And about the time you hit mid-February, early March, you're going to hit some tough stuff. You're going to think, oh, I think maybe I'll come back to this a little bit later. Leviticus, Numbers, it's not quite the same thing as reading the drama of Genesis. But there are some healthy Bible reading plans that will help you see the sum and scope of all of Scripture. Do these things, but as you do those things that create inputs into your life spiritually, don't ignore this because it supersedes them all. The Word of God flourishes best when we hear it and respond to it, obey it together. It's meant to be declared in community. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you, you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Listen, when you heard it, you all collectively, from us, these apostles... Men like Paul, as they're preaching it, teaching it to them. When you heard it, you received it as the word of God. What did it do? It transformed you in community. You became collective you. The church here, Thessalonica, became like the churches there. You became a God-shaped community. A word-created, God-shaped, Holy Spirit-driven community by the preaching of the word. Remember this. And I have two statements that sort of summarize what I want you to hear. When it comes to transformation of people, 
transformation of a church, a spiritual community, that isn't merely about the delivery and receipt of content. This requires a sharing of lives, lives that are watched, heard, and followed. On the one hand, we live in an era, we live in a generation where content is more available to us than it's ever been. Good content, solid content. I say this um, not in any sort of, of false humility, but if you're just out for good content, you can certainly find better preaching and better teaching than, than you're going to get from me. You can find it online. All those guys you'd love to listen to, you can, you can watch their services. You can listen to their messages. great content available. You can go to the source. You can read great theology and great doctrine and great practical teaching and application. But real transformation is not just about downloading content, whether that's through a book or through the Internet, through some source in your ear. It's more than that. You see, again and again, the example in the church was this. Here are people that you know teaching you truth that you believe and demonstrating in front of you what it means to live this out. And we do this again and again and again in community, observing, imitating, following, hearing, understanding. It flourishes together in community. You see, you and I are called to do more than just communicate. If it was just about communication, then you don't really need to be here on Sunday morning. If it's just about communication, we could do this in a more refined form if we did it online, if we did it as a program. I remember when uh, COVID part one uh, hit us about uh, 18 years ago and we first made this decision. I can still remember it. I was, I was actually at the beach of the weekend, and all this stuff is happening. I'm, I'm reading the same snippets of news that you were reading back then, and, and I'm hearing you know, all these different alarms being raised, and I've got pastor friends of mine texting me, hey, what are you guys going to do, and hey, what are you thinking? And, and then at the very last minute, you may remember, for those of you who have a great memory, I put together this video behind the uh, gas station in Chipley, uh, with a, still with a ball cap on, hey, we're not going to have church tomorrow. Um, I think I probably said some of the same inane things we've all been hearing. You know, we're going to flatten the curve. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, and we're not going to gather. And so for about three months, if you recall, we were putting those services online. Now, we didn't have the tech and the cameras and all that stuff to go live with it on Sunday mornings. So what we did was we recorded the service on Thursday. Now, what that affords us the opportunity to do, though we really did not because I don't have the patience to preach the same sermon two times rapidly in a row, but it did allow for some edits. You know, if I said something really stupid, something off the cuff that didn't make sense, if I stuttered, stammered, whatever, say like retake, let's start that one all over again. If it was just about content, we could do that every week. We'll set up a studio. I'll practice this thing. I'll get better, I promise. I'll even shorten it up some. But it's not about that. It's about us gathering together in community. God doesn't want us just simply to communicate truth. He wants us to commune together. He wants us to share life with one another. He wants for the hurting person in the room today to see that they're not the only person who's hurting, but to know there are people who are hurting who have turned to Christ and have found encouragement there and now encourage them. That the person that's got something really joyful to celebrate has got other people that love them and want to celebrate with them. That there are people who are struggling with their faith too. And we can find the truth that we need to help us take the next step, to help us keep going over and over again. So we gather because it flourishes there. Number three, we gather because, and this is a hard, hard concept for us, but even the reality of some of the things I shared with you at the beginning of the service make this, this truth painfully evident. We gather because we are appointed to face affliction. 
That's what's going to happen in this world. And I chose that word because it's the word that appears in the text, appointed to. You have an appointment with pain in this world. There's no way around it. There's some types of shaping in your life that do not come apart from difficulty and hardship and suffering. There's parts of faith building that cannot come without struggle, without loss, without hurt. You and I are appointed to face affliction in this world, but we find strength and we find encouragement in community. This is the way that God designed it. I'm not simply throwing out for you something that's theoretical. I hope it's practical and helpful, but not because we designed it this way, but because this is how God made us to be. You're going to face difficult times. There's not a person in this room that's immune from them. I always feel a little bit reluctant to even talk about a few individuals' pain because I don't know all of your pains. And I always fear that there will be somebody hurting there and say, but, but what about me? But what about me? What about what's going on in my life? I get it. I hear you. But where are you going to find your comfort, your encouragement? So I'll get that from God, yes. But how will God meet that out to you? How will he... How will he distribute that to you? How will he make sure that it gets to you? He'll do it through other people with the comfort that you have received from him, the comfort you comfort one another. This is how God works through us. Listen to what he says, chapter 2, verse 14. You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. Not only did you grow in them spiritually, but you learned some lessons about their suffering. You suffered the same things as they suffered. They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets in that, in that area. And yet a church was flourishing there. You suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. You're going through what they've gone through. But they're still flourishing there. The church was birthed in Jerusalem. You're going to see that in a couple of weeks or a few weeks when we get to Acts. But Jerusalem... God sent them to be a light to the nations, but they didn't. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, but they stayed in Jerusalem. And so God allowed persecution to come, intense persecution. And that persecution dispersed them out to the nations by force. And the church still flourished there, and it flourishes wherever it went. It says, you, you're going through what they're going through. That's a comparison on a large scale. What about on a personal scale? You're not the only person who's been hurt. You're the only person that's been through pain. Look, look at what this person has been through. God won't waste your hurts if you'll share them with somebody else, if you'll share what God's done in your life, if you'll share that recovery. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Do you catch that? When we could bear it no longer... We sent Timothy to help you, to, in, to encourage you, to shore up under all this struggle. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for afflictions? You know this, right? When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What is he saying? Listen, I know what it's like to be persecuted, Paul said. I know what it's like to be a in a community of faith that is persecuted. I hear and understand your persecution. And I fear that 
the church being birthed there in its infancy there would turn away from the true and living God in the face of this persecution, so we sent someone for your encouragement. Listen, this is what God does. He does it for churches, and he does it for people. And that's why the most dangerous thing that you can do in the most difficult times of your life is to go it alone, to withdraw. You're upset. You think people aren't going to understand. Or you think the church is just about celebrating good times, weddings, childbirths, victories. It's not about grief and sadness because people don't want to hear that. They don't have time for that, so there's no place for you. Or worse yet, or more powerfully yet, you're angry at God. You may not voice it, but that's what you're feeling. God, why? What's going on? God, I've served you faithfully. God, I've done what you've asked me to do. God, I've sacrificed you. I've given. I've done. I, I don't get it. I don't understand. And you withdraw. In the most vulnerable, most fragile time of your life, withdrawing is the most dangerous thing that you can do because comfort, strength, and encouragement is found in community. See, look at this next point. God made us for this. He made us for face-to-face relationships and community. Now listen, I don't want to go off on this sort of, I don't know, diatribe, this soapbox against social media and all that kind of stuff. I would challenge you to consider and measure how much time you do spend online, disconnected from people, face down in a phone. No, I am going to go on a diatribe. It frustrates me, honestly. I, I get frustrated driving in my car. And I look to the person beside me who just almost swerved into my lane, and I know why. Because they're looking down at their phone. I'm walking in a busy store, and someone bumps into me like they didn't see me, and I know why. Because they were looking down at their phone. You're sitting at dinner, and you're at a restaurant, and there's a family across from you, and they don't communicate or talk. Why? Because everyone's in their phone. I mean, we're connected like we've never been connected, but we're disconnected like we've never been disconnected. I believe there's something spiritual to that. I believe there's something more insidious to that. I believe the enemy really wants to separate, disconnect people, and make them isolated. When God made us for face-to-face. He did. He made us for face-to-face relationships. Look at verse 17. Since we were torn away from you, brothers. You can circle that on your notes. You ever feel that way? I know some of you do. I mean, I I hear the frustration some with people. Uh, We have missed being here so much because they were sick or because they were traveling, or they were hindered, or when we had stopped meeting in person for a season, the number of people uh, who were so eager to gather again, and were so excited that we're back in person, said, oh, I needed this so much, I missed this so much. I know some of us feel this way, that to not meet, to not be face-to-face, feels like we're being ripped apart, but we're being increasingly conditioned to not feel that way. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, We endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Again, I believe that's just how God made us. I mean, our hearts are still connected. And that's the argument people will make with virtual church, right? You know, we're still a church. A church is not a building, I get that. But a church is a people who gather in a place. And typically for our comfort and convenience, we do gather in a building. It just makes it easier. But when we're separated, yes, we're connected by heart. But that's not enough. Face to face. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? 
for you are our glory and joy. What's he saying there? I mean, do you catch this? When, when I, the Apostle Paul, not me, that's him, when the, that guy, the Apostle Paul, stands before God, what is he standing there with the hopes of being rewarded for? The investment made in people face-to-face. You're our joy. You're our glory. You're our crown. You're it. You're the point. People are the point. And God made us for that. God made us for each other. We need one another. But we become or allow ourselves to become so selfish and self-centered that we think the church is about me and, and my needs. Is there anything that guy is going to say today that helps me, that benefits me? If it's just about hearing something that helps you, you can listen to that later. We'll provide a recording of this service online in a couple of days. But what if it's about other people? What is it about someone who needs someone to say something to them today? Or be encouraged today? Or be noticed today? Or be prayed for today? What if it's someone that needs a friendship? What if it's someone that needs a, a lunch, a meeting, a get-together? What if it's someone who's got some real needs? And how do you meet those when, when we're not together? God made us for face-to-face. And I'll give you this final point from chapter 3. Remember I said that the church at Thessalonica was a church born in, and it grew up in, and it thrived in the face of persecution. That's just an easy phrase just to say, but understand what I'm talking about here. It was costly to be a Christian for them. It cost them social relationships. It cost them them social credibility. It, It cost them advancement in their workplaces. It cost them family. It cost them politically. It cost them legally. It cost some of them their lives. So when you think about the potential of persecution for Christians today, understand this is not new. This has been, this has been the hard ground that the church has grown up in since the beginning. Real persecution. What they decided, which I hope you and I also will decide together, is that Jesus is worth it. Whatever that cost may be to follow him, he's worth it. And you're not just following him alone. We're doing this together. We're going to stick together. And we're going to encourage one another. We're going to help one another. We're going to keep each other strong. We're going to motivate each other. And when one's weak, somebody else is going to be strong because we're going to be locked arms together. We're going to contend as one man for the gospel so that weakness won't be so easily perceived by the enemy. Because when the enemy comes against you, he comes against us, against us all, because we are a family, we are a church, we are a body. We stand fast in the faith, best in community. We talked a little bit in the book of Hebrews about the phenomena, the disturbing trend of deconstruction of faith, people taking it apart, breaking it down, and then deconversion, walking away. People who once said they were believers, once said they were Christians, who now say that they're not. One of the commonalities in people who deconstruct and deconvert is they have fallen away from a community of believers. No longer in close relationship. No longer in relationships where people really know them and know their struggles. No longer in places where they're held accountable. Not just what they think or feel, but for how they live and the choices that they make. And so many different reasons. Moral, intellectual, etc. With no accountability, no connection, no community. What's the result? Vulnerability. Great vulnerability. Gross vulnerability. We stand best when we stand together. Listen to what he says in verse 6. 
But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It wasn't just about Paul standing fast or Timothy. It was about them. It's not just about you making it. It's not just about you thriving to the end of the, of the race and crossing the finish line well. It's about all of us. I, I want to know that you are. I, I live if you're, if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Did you catch that? For your sake? I'm in this for your sake. You're in this for my sake. We're in this for each other's sake. That's what this is about. I'm in it not just to win for myself, but that you might win also with me. And if you're struggling, if you're lacking something, maybe the things you need to know about God, things you need to know about his word. If you're struggling for faith, borrow some of mine or let me borrow some of yours. When I'm feeling discouraged, will you be my encouragement? When I'm feeling weak, will you be strong for me? When I want to quit, will you not let me? And when I sin, will you not let me sin and fall away completely? Can we do that for each other? In the same book, The Compelling Community, Jamie Dunlop says this, The Bible assumes that all Christians love one another deeply and sacrificially. It assumes that all Christians assemble regularly with one another. It assumes that all Christians encourage one another to fight for faith. It assumes that all Christians guard one another through difficult conversations and sometimes through church discipline. That's normal Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. It's just not typical. But that's what God made us for. God made us for that sort of community. So what's your response to this today? I think about that last section from chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. Who are you comforting right now? Who's comforting you? Who's walking with you right now through your distress, through your affliction, through your hard season? Who's walking with you through it? Who are you walking with through their distress and affliction and struggle right now? Who are you helping to supply what's lacking in their faith? Who are you helping hold up who wants to let go? Who are you picking up who's fallen? Who's helping you? Who's picking you up? Who's filling in the gaps in your spiritual life? See, this is the normal Christian life for us. You may have noticed, of course, you wouldn't notice it as much since you're here and not um, viewing online. We made the strategic decision, when I say we, we discussed this among our staff for several months and then with our elders we made the strategic decision to not continue to be online live for Sunday morning worship. Now, we know there are pros and cons to that, and we're not oblivious to those. Um, we want to continue to deliver content to people who want it, who need it, particularly for our own people who can't be here. Some are hindered, can't be here because of sickness or because of health or because of age or whatever the reason may be, legitimately cannot gather with us, and we want to maintain that connection with them. We hope that connection will be more through the giving of online content, though. We hope it'll be through relationships and through contacts with people in their life group and people in this church, people-to-people -people contacts. 
But what we decided is the call of the church fundamentally is so wrapped up in, so requisite of physically gathering that to do anything that minimizes that or conveys that if you can gather with us and choose not to, that's the same thing, would simply be wrong. It would be unhealthy on our part. And while we do recognize that some can't, we hope that all who can will. Because again, the church is not a building. It's not the building. It is about the gathering. It is about God's people in a place. We are an assembly. That's what the word church means. We translate the Greek from the word church in scripture, ecclesia. It is a, it's a gathering. It's an assembly. And we talk about the kind of assembly we are, the spiritual community we are. It's an assembly of God's people who gather together under the word of God for the worship of God so that we can advance the mission of God. We gather to go. We gather so we can be sent out. That's who we are. And that's intrinsic to our philosophy as a church as well. Why do we gather? We gather as God's people so we can be fed from his word, so we can encourage one another, so we can hear from the Lord, so we can be strengthened and equipped, taught and prepared to go out and be his ambassadors. That's what we do. Jonathan Lehman, he's co-author with Colin Hansen of a book called Rediscover Church. And speaking of the more modern uh, phenomena of virtual church, which wouldn't have been, even been possible some years ago, but which seems to be more and more commonplace today, he speculates what goes missing when your church experience is nothing more than a weekly live stream. He says, for starters, you think less about your fellow members. They don't come to mind. You don't bump into them and have the quick conversations that lead to longer conversations over dinner. Beyond that, you remove yourself from the path of encouragement, accountability, and love. Praise God that we can download biblical truths, but let's praise God that the Christian life is more than just an information transfer. When church is only online, we can't feel, experience, and witness those truths becoming enfleshed in the family of God, which both fortifies our faith and creates cords of love between brothers and sisters. Virtual church is an oxymoron. Think about it. Maybe you struggle with hidden hatred toward a brother all week, but then his presence at the Lord's table draws you to conviction and confession. Maybe you struggle with suspicion toward the sister, but then you see her singing the same songs of praise and your heart warms. Your, your struggle, you struggle with anxiety over what's happening politically in our nation. But then the preacher declares God's coming and victory and vindication, and you hear shouts of amen all around you, and you recall that you belong to a heavenly citizenry, citizenry allied in hope. You're tempted to keep your personal struggle in the dark. But then an older couple's tender but pressing question over lunch, how are you doing really, draws you into the light. None of this can be experienced virtually. God made us physical and relational creatures. Christian life and church life cannot finally be downloaded. They must be observed, heard, stepped into, and followed. And that's what we want to encourage. We want to encourage that real, authentic, biblical community. And you may be thinking, I thought the series of this, the theme of this, was being missionaries. You're talking about us. You're talking about our gathering. You're talking about the benefits for us and hardship and difficulty and good times and bad for the church. What does that have to do with our mission? Everything. Everything. You, you can't separate the two. You, you can't separate the call to be God's people and the commission to be God's people. Our community is central in what we do. This idea of a compelling community transformed by the gospel, brothers and sisters in Christ, look at what God is shaping us to be. We want you to come be part of that. As God shapes us, he sends us. As he forms us here, 
as he prepares us here, he sends us. As God remakes us into his image, as God creates these cords of love that transcend the sort of love and relationships this world has, he creates an attraction here that this world can't emulate. And we spend so much time, it seems like, in modern church trying to be like the world, trying to create experiences that someone out in the world might feel comfortable with or enjoy. But what we find more and more is they're not looking for more of that, more of the same. The guy that spends all of his time in bars doesn't want to come to church and feel like he's in one. The person that spends all of his time at sporting events doesn't want to come to church and feel like everything's rah-rah because he's got real problems, real stuff in his life that that doesn't address. Now, we're something different here. We are a community of God's people bound together in Christ through love. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. Jesus asserted the centrality of the gospel when it comes to evangelism and gospel community in John chapter 13. His last night on earth, he predicts his betrayal. This betrayal, of course, is going to mean his hour of glorification. What does this mean for the disciples? New responsibilities now. They must take the mantle. They must take the baton. But what does he tell them to do primarily? What's their primary responsibility? In John 13, verses 34 and 35, their primary responsibility is to love one another. Love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Don Carson says it this way, and I'll close. The new command is not only the obligation of the new community to respond to the God who has loved them and set them free by the offering of His Son. Neither is it merely their response to His gracious choice of them as His people. It's a privilege, which, when rightly lived out, proclaims the true God before a watching world. That's why Jesus ends His injunction with these words, All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Before we are pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, we are people who love one another because of the love that we have in Christ. This community is at the heart of our mission. And I pray that you'll commit to that today. I'm going to ask if you bow your heads and pray with me. As you do all over this room, I want you to ask God, what would he have you do now? My intent this week and each week to follow is to give you a missional challenge. Something specific that you can do to facilitate genuine community, to protect genuine community. I give you a two-part challenge today as you pray and ask God what he'd have you to do. The first one is a little bit more open. Again, it springs directly from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Consider how. You, with your, with your D group, with your life group, will you consider how you're going to encourage one another? That you're going to protect the gathering? Will you consider how that you're going to build one another up in love and then do it? And share what you're doing with others? And here's your simple missional challenge for me today. If you're not in a small group already, committed to a life group, join one ASAP. Before you leave today, you can stop by a table at the back that says next steps. Our discipleship pastor, Dan Tankersley, will be there. He would like nothing more than help guide you towards a life group. If you're not in one, you need to be in one. You need that level of community. Closer knit than people in a big room, all facing the same direction. What we do here is vital, but it's not sufficient. You need to be connected with real people face-to-face. If you are in a life group already, will you renew your commitment to it this year? Will you raise your level of commitment to it? And if you know people in your life group that you haven't seen in a while, 
a person, a family you haven't heard from or seen in a month or more, here's your missional challenge. You reach out to them this week as their brother or sister in Christ. You supply what's lacking. You be the one that cares for them. You be the one that's their encourager. You be the one that's their challenge. You show your love to them. Will you reach out to them? Father, I pray that community would not simply be a concept for us, but would be a habit. And we would practice gathering until community is the result. This value that we hold, that we would be real spiritual family to one another. Practice by our gathering, I pray this would become just who we are, very core to our habit. And I pray this would be for your, your glory, for the good of this body, as we work together, serve together, endure together, disciple together, evangelize together, stand firm to the return of Christ together. And it would be the means of grace by which this community, our friends, our neighbors, our classmates would be reached. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We receive this benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 and following. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. God bless you.